Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Tech, 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 tech talk. Tech, 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 tech talk. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, all you easy riders on the technological superhighway. It's time to pull up for a bit, spread out the picnic rug, crack open the lunchbox full of sandwiches settle in for some easy listening tech talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here he is, it's Matthew Dickerson, and the good news is he's brought a digital dessert with enough to share for everyone. How are you, Matt, and what's been on your mind? I hope it's a three-course menu, James, not just dessert. We want to fill people up with all the goodies and then dessert at the end. I think we've got it today. Excellent. Well, I've come back from Hobart this week, and one of the things that I wanted to do while I was in Hobart, I was there for a week, was I wanted to go and explore some areas. I had to be there for a couple of days for a conference, but I wanted to explore some different areas. And so you do that by hiring a car, maybe. But of course... Did you spend any time at Constitution Dock? I did spend some That's time there. It's a lovely there. area, they tell it me. It is, actually. Yeah, quite a nice area there. And so hiring a car, I just struggle a little bit these days getting into an internal combustion engine car, getting into taxis, <laughs> I find that tough. <laughs> and I just, uh, look, it they're often... sit well in you. It doesn't. And often, I mean, a hybrid car, a lot of taxis are hybrids now, but I was up in Brisbane recently, and you could actually order an EV taxi. So there was one particular company that said, right. we've got those. I ordered one, but they said, sorry... They're already out on job, so you're going to have to put up with hybrid cars. I didn't quite get what I wanted. but Did I want you complain the whole way? <laughs> no, I didn't, because the, the guy that picked me up probably wasn't part of the decision-making process. I, I thought you it would have fallen on deaf You let him off the hook. I did, yeah, that particular guy. Okay. But I wanted to hire a car in Hobart that was an EV, so I checked around, and there was a few different ways I could do it. There are actually some hire companies that are dedicated EV hire companies, and then there are the mainstream hire companies that are starting to bring in EVs now. I thought, oh, well, I'll give that a go, and... I think they're struggling a little bit to hire them because the price of, and again, I won't use brand names here, but the price of one of those traditional brands for a mid-size sedan was actually a lot cheaper than the internal combustion engine version. Oh, right. Went, wow, that's good. I'm, I'm happy with that. I was happy to pay more for it, but I'm happy to pay less as well. So I hired that when I got down there. And obviously, I'm vaguely familiar with how you drive it differently, how you might recharge it. But I did actually say to the guy, pretending that I had no idea, I said, what do I do? And he didn't really help that much. I don't think they've really got their head wrapped around this whole hiring of EVs yet. He just said, there's a little manual in there and tells me how to recharge, which there was a sheet of paper in there. And I said, where do I recharge? He said, oh, you'll find a few places around the place. Didn't really give me a lot of comfort. And I was quite happy. I'd already done my research. I'd already found recharging spots. And there was a motel I was staying at so I could recharge with a normal so power So you were just putting them to the test. Well, I, yeah. I did want to see how easy it would be for someone who wasn't familiar with EVs because I think that some people who are testing the waters a little bit, rather than go and fork out 50 grand, 60 grand, 70 grand for a car and then go, oh, it doesn't quite suit my circumstances, they might fork out $150, $200 for a day, maybe a couple of days to hire one, see how it works out for them, and then go, yeah, now I've got the hang of this, I can really feel like I'm going to go and buy one. So I thought it's a great way to get people into it. But it wasn't a great advertisement the way it was done, I mm. must admit. So anyway, I picked it up. It was a Maybe you just got the wrong guy on the wrong day. Uh, maybe. And I suppose that's part of that hire company's philosophy is to make sure everyone understands it. But it was a Polestar. And I hadn't driven a Polestar before. So that was a, a good experience. They were getting either Teslas or Polestars. And I said, why the Polestar, not the Tesla? And he said, well, we could get the Polestars. We could buy them, apparently. We couldn't get the Teslas for a short or a longer period of time. So the Polestar was good. It's a Volvo brand. It's their EV brand under Volvo. It seemed good, but again, then just finding the charging points, charging up, and just in general, 
talking to people about it. I talked to people at the motel, for example. I said, oh, where's your charging point here? I've got a hire car. They went, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but as I often do is I just find a PowerPoint and plug in. And that's exactly what I did. So, for example, we went for a trip down to Port Arthur. It's a 200-odd-kilometre round trip. So we went down there, spent the day down there, came back, and I just plugged into a PowerPoint, didn't worry about going and finding a fast charger. Next morning, ready to go again. Basically, it wasn't quite fully charged, but close enough to fully charge, and away we went again. But I did yeah. find the University of Tasmania. They had a fast charger. I found down at Constitution Dock, you mentioned that, they've got a tritium charger down there. I found uh, another charger. I can't remember what brand it was, but there's another charger that I found in town that was just a, a fast charger. And again, you look all these up on, on maps, etc. So it was relatively easy to charge up. But again, I just used the motel. That was all I found that I needed there. So it's a good experience. If you do a bit of research, I'm just a bit worried that people that turn up and say, I want to give one of these a go, can you help me? And yeah. they say, sure, maybe. One of the other things I thought was good was unlimited kilometres and they only expect you to have it charged to 20% to return it. Oh, right. So it's not like a petrol car where they put limits on kilometres sometimes or they might say, or and possibly they might say, you've got to return with a full tank of fuel or almost a fuel tank of fuel, or some of them have bowsers there when you return it and you've got to fill it up and pay for that petrol. So the whole time I was there, we racked up over the week, oh, I can't remember, maybe 800 kilometres over the week as we tripped around a bit, didn't pay a single cent for electricity, and the higher fee for that particular car, again, was less than I'd expect to see for a normal sedan. I think I paid about 160 a day for that, so that wasn't That's too awesome. bad. Yeah, so for people that want to try it out, what a great way to do it. And Tasmania is actually not a bad spot to do it in because it's not too large, so mm. you can get to various places within that range that you've got, and again, there are a fair few charges. Tasmania seems fairly environmentally conscious, so there, there are a few charges around, and lots of EVs around as well. And giving it a go. Giving it well, a go. Well, just, um, I was thinking, okay, so maybe the cost, the, the higher cost is a little bit less, because the running costs are a bit less. I think at the moment, my appraisal of it, the experience after the week there was yeah, okay. that I think they just didn't know what they were working with. Well, no, I think they've actually had a bit of trouble hiring them, so I yeah, think they've okay. probably dropped the price because I found some other places that are dedicated to EV hiring and they are much dearer than okay. that because people are looking for that. But I think in this case, this mainstream company said, we should try out EVs. They've done that and then they've probably gone, oh, we're not hiring many. Well, let's drop the price. And so the price was quite attractive. Maybe all those things that you're talking about, about the maintenance costs, et cetera, the resale value, those things might help that hire company in the long term. But in the short term, I think they're just saying, we've got these cars here. No one's hiring them. What are we going to do about that? And as so often is the case, the way you address that problem is by market forces, by price. Still um, got some range anxiety out there, perhaps. Um, perhaps we've got something in today's stories to talk about that. Who knows? Who, Who knows? knows what we might have lined up for people, James? <laughs> Anyway, give it a go. If, you, if you're worried about it, if you're thinking you might want to test the water out, just give it a go and see what happens. You, you know, the worst thing you can have is you, right. you might get stuck somewhere and you ring the hire company and they'll come pick you up. Fantastic idea. Well, I don't know about you folks, but I'm just about ready to tuck in today's buffet. Let's get into it. While snail mail may not feature on your radar much these days, I'm going to send out a big shout out to the posties around the country for the great service that they still provide in an age of instant gratification. As we head into the silly season, they are every bit set to help all the bajillion parcels work their Christmas magic with all the toing and froing that needs to be done there. But Australia Post has another important role in the lead up to Christmas this year. With so many vehicles out on the road, they'll be playing an important role in mapping black spots for phone coverage. 
is the old killing two birds with one stone, isn't it, Matt? I really like this idea, and I want to try and create an eponymous law today. Eponymous. That's your word for the day, folks. Eponymous. <laughs> I want to call it Dickerson's Dissatisfaction with Advancing Telecommunications Law, or let's call it Dattle for short, <laughs> double D at the, at the front, so you can stutter a little bit on that. The problem is, and, and this, this law, a bit like, say, Moore's Law, where we talk about advancing semiconductors and doubling every 18 months, this law, this is my law, so I can phrase it how I like, but this law says, as our telecommunication services improve, so do our expectation levels such that our dissatisfaction level remains the same. Yeah, I would say that that's a pretty good law. So I go back to my you first... You put your stamp on that one. Yeah, good. Thank you. I go back to my first mobile phone sale, 26th of July, 1990, I sold my first mobile phone. And the coverage in the area where I sold that was horrific. You had to stand <laughs> within sight of the tower to maybe say to people, within look at me. Within sight of the person you're talking to. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> look at me. How clever am I? I'm making a mobile phone call, but I can't move and I can't go around the corner there. So the coverage was terrible. In between towns, forget about it. Around the block, maybe forget about it as well. But people bought phones and thought, aren't these fantastic? Aren't these exciting? We've progressed over time, obviously. Mm. So we're getting much better coverage. We're getting much better coverage between towns now. Jumping in the car and driving some distance, you could often kill a bit of time with all those phone calls you can make along the way. So fantastic. But still, as per Dattle, the <laughs> dissatisfaction level remains about the same. And so the latest from the Australian government, which I think is very clever, is they're fitting all these Australia Post vehicles, well, actually not all of them, some of them, there are 20,600 delivery vehicles at the moment across the Australia Post network. That's a fair sort of a fleet. That is a fair sort of a fleet. They've got 12.3 million addresses they go to. So if you want to get some idea of the coverage of something, if you sit back and go, what's some way we can get to all those places? Sure, do a Google and hire a bunch of vehicles and put some equipment on them and start sending drivers around. That's expensive. But putting them on Australia Post vehicles, as they're already doing their job, and they'll be mapping two things. They'll be mapping the coverage, but also the service level. So the congestion, for example. So you might yeah. find that in some places, sure, you've got four bars here. This is fantastic. Don't need to worry about there. But lots of people live in that area or lots of people have moved to that area. So suddenly the four bars are of no use to you because so many people are there. So it's very congested. Yeah. So they'll be testing both of those things. They'll have equipment installed on their vehicles that will test both the signal quality and the congestion levels there. So they'll be actually sending some traffic as they go. With all of that information, you'll be able to map out really accurate maps for coverage. Now, the only question I haven't been able to answer yet is if I'm wanting to know what the coverage is like, I'll go to my carrier. There are three main carriers in Australia, three different sets of towers, and I'll go to my preferred one of those three and look at the coverage for that particular provider. Is this going to give me, from the Australia Post perspective, the coverage for each of my three different providers? Because I don't really care what the coverage is like with carrier A and carrier B if I'm with carrier C. Yeah. I only care about carrier C. And there are maps, obviously, those carriers put out. Here's the coverage you get with our carriage service. So people look at those maps and compare those, but they're not really accurate. And that's what they're trying to do with this. They're trying to get them really accurate. But then they say, we've got a problem here. The coverage isn't great in this particular area. Then they've got to go through that process of black spot funding. Which one of the three carriers gets that black spot funding? And different carriers have won those different contracts over the years. So it still doesn't help consumer who, or a consumer who's got service with one carrier. Most people I know don't have 
services with three carriers. Some yeah. actually have it with two, especially now with phones that are dual SIM. They might have two carriers set up in their one phone so they'll get coverage across those different black spot areas. But that's still the problem we have in this nation. So we'll get really accurate maps across the three carriers. We can apply that, or the, the federal government can apply some of that with black spot funding, but then it still leaves that problem that which carrier are you with? And despite what Australia Post might show in their testing, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem for you. But at least it's one step forward in being able to map it a little bit more clearly. You are spot on. Fans of Derek Zoolander will know that he cannot turn left. And in much the same way, Uber drivers in the US are about to suffer the same affliction. I assume that that will translate to Australia, uh, to Uber drivers not turning right there, Matt. Uh, what's all this about and why are Uber drivers going all Zoolanderish? <laughs> I'd forgotten about Zoolander. That's a good point. They should call it the Zoolander rule. I like it. But it's actually quite interesting. It's fascinating to think about the algorithms that are set up with mapping. And in fact, my son, I was talking to him the other day, who's studying computer science at uni, and he was talking about an algorithm that he's creating to try and get that mapping. It was a very basic sort of mapping process to go from A to B and the conditions that had to be met to go from A to B and then how it would map out the best path from A to B. It wasn't specifically about mapping, but similar. So what Uber is doing is they're saying, sure, we've got to go from A to B. That's obvious. Drivers want to be able to drive with their passengers to get across there. But they found that 22% of all accidents in the US, this is from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, 22% of all crashes involve a vehicle making a left-hand turn at an intersection. Now, again, yeah, they right. drive on the other side so of the road. Yeah, and they've got to cross a, cross a lane. That's right. Track. So for us, it's turning right. Turning left for us is easy. Turning right for us is the equivalent of, so you're turning across that traffic. So that's a fair few crashes. Think about all the different ways mm. you can have a crash. There's lots of different ways you can have a crash. 22% of the time, it's making a turn across traffic at an intersection. So Uber has said, well, if that's a problem, obviously it is, we'll add that little bit of extra complexity to our mapping and we'll reduce the number of left-hand turns that a driver will make. So they'll go around the block, if you like, a bit further and make a number of right-hand turns rather than making a single left-hand turn. Now, I wonder, does that like cause a problem because are you taking me further? Are you going the long way? A, I've got a time budget that I'm working to, and B, you're going to charge me more money for the trip. So you're talking about the dodgy taxi drivers you get in when you get into a city you've never been <laughs> you to, and you going, go, hold on, I don't think we should yeah, be out I here. Think we've gone past this building before. <laughs> right. Are you trying to avoid a left turn? <laughs> so that might be the reason that taxi drivers have done it in the past. I've never given them the benefit of the doubt, to be honest. But the algorithm they've been creating is designed specifically to make fewer left turns whilst not adding significantly to the journey. Now, what's significant? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Mm. Is it 50%? I'm not sure. Uh. But Uber have said without adding significantly to the journey. So presumably it shouldn't add much time, shouldn't add much in terms of cost, but should make the journey safer. Now, I did try and find out if there was any data there, and Uber don't like to give out this sort of data, but any data to show how many Ubers have been involved in accidents, if this is a major safety risk, is the prevalence of accidents in the Uber community higher than in the normal community that you and I drive in or that the taxi industry might have, for example? Couldn't find any of the data. And no. I imagine Uber doesn't like to release that data, in particular if it doesn't look good for them. But obviously they've identified that this is obviously some safety issue, so let's solve that safety issue by reducing the number of left-hand turns. I love the concept. 
I would love to see the programming, love to see the algorithm, which I'm sure would be protected by some heavy copyright from Uber, but love to see the algorithm that shows how they're going to make fewer left turns whilst also <laughs> keeping the journey time reasonable and the cost reasonable and making all that happen and give the safety to the drivers additional safety. This- ever-growing spiral from your <laughs> point of origin. Well, I was thinking about it as well. To thinking, destination. <laughs> here I am on the street. I want to go just there, and it's just left there. So instead of doing that, I take a right at the next yeah, intersection right. and then right at the next intersection <laughs> and then a right. So I turn three rights to get back to where I was about to go to with one left. Depending on the size of the blocks, probably that's okay. But in some blocks sitting in the middle of New York City, they might take an hour to get around that block. So surely that's going to be a tough one. I think I'll be fine with it just as long as the driver can give me a decent blue steel look at the end of it. <laughs> that's absolutely right. I've got to talk to you, Bevan, and say, just bring bring Derek back <laughs> and put him in your dashes there somewhere. For the adventurous types among us, you'll be able to connect up to Starlink satellite internet straight from your RV from December. And so you'll have free run of the whole World Wide Web wherever you decide to pull up for the night. Matt, they say that a rolling stone gathers no moss, but will it be able to download and upload like a champion slap bang in the middle of the Simpson Desert? Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, we did talk last week about Starlink on planes, and we talked about how exciting that was, 350 megabits per second from memory for the whole plane, which is pretty good, a lot better than some of the other satellite services. Now, Starlink has had the ability in the past, so go back a couple of steps. Starlink, first of all, said you're out in a homestead, out in the middle of the Simpson Desert, out in the middle of nowhere, and you can't get any decent internet, so put a satellite dish on your roof, point it up to our satellites, that'll pick up the signal, and away you go. And all very cost-effective. The dish itself you had to purchase outright, but we're talking about a couple hundred dollars, so not a lot of expense there. And keep in mind, if you had nothing, then having something that was reasonable is pretty exciting. And it's actually a bit better than reasonable because we're not talking about geostationary satellites. They sit at about 36,000 kilometres. These are low Earth orbit satellites, so they're sitting 300 to 500 kilometres above the Earth. So that's much better from a latency perspective. And that was all great. They then moved on to say, people want to use these in cars, so we'll let them use it in their RV once they get somewhere, so they can drive along, pull up somewhere, pull out their satellite dish, point it up there, not a lot of extra expense, a bit dearer, but at least you could use it when you got somewhere. But you can't use it while you drive along because it was too hard to get that to try and find some reception somewhere while you're yeah, driving along. tracking while you're taking corners and all that sort of stuff. All that sort of stuff. Now they've got to the point where that's what you can do. So in the past, if you wanted to use one of the RV satellite dishes, it was $599 for that, American dollars this is. And so that was the one where you could set up each night. But now if you're happy to pay $2,500, you can set up one of the flat high performance dishes, which presumably gives you better reception from a range of angles. So as you're driving along, you've now got internet access. Now, wow. I assume this isn't for the driver. I assume this is for the kids <laughs> sitting in the car or maybe someone sitting in the passenger seat who's a bit bored with the conversation and wants to sit there and catch up with the latest Derek Zoolander movie or whatever yeah. it might be. <laughs> so <laughs> this is pretty dreaming. exciting though, because again, we've now got this complexity of a moving vehicle, not at the speed we are talking about last week with aeroplanes, but moving vehicle along at 100 kilometres an hour, for example, with satellites up there. And remember, these aren't geostationary, so they're mm. moving across the sky mm. while our vehicle's moving across the land, and it's got to be able to connect to that and keep that connection up and hand off to satellites as it goes, and all the while giving you 
pretty decent sort of internet speed, which Starlink is pretty good for speeds. The cost per month for all these different services is about the same, $135 a month. So they're not charging you extra. It's just in the actual hardware. But I guarantee for people that do travel around a bit, people that have got a caravan, mm. a Winnebago, an RV, whatever it might be, and they get around a bit, even for sales reps who want to be in touch while they're out on the road, you can imagine that they could use Wi-Fi calling, for example, or use various apps that use Wi-Fi rather than just a good old-fashioned phone signal. Then they could be incredibly productive compared to, oh, I can't make a phone call now, I'm going to drop out for the next half an hour, so I'll just have that dead time. You could actually make yourself more productive. So a lot of employers, I assume, would be quite happy to pay that $2,500 for one of the employees if they could be more productive out on the road. So it sounds to me like a pretty exciting sort of development. Well, I think uh, if you're following, if you're part of the support crew for some jaunt that's going across the country, uh, for example, anyone who's running from Western Australia to Bondi Beach, <laughs> um, you've, there's some pretty lonely hours sitting in the car sort of tailing that person. Um, there might be um, a need for that sort of stuff as well, for quite a productive need for the support crew. Yeah. And there's a fine line there between need and want. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know when I get on a plane, I don't need internet access, yeah, okay. but I do want it. <laughs> and I think the same with that, that you can probably survive because we've have done for a long time, survive without internet access everywhere we go. But as we get more, it goes back to that eponymous law at the beginning of the program that we've got that ability to get more connection and so we are dissatisfied if we don't have that connection everywhere so i can see all sorts of examples it might be outback treks it might be as you say runners or cyclists or any outback adventures trekking across the desert there's a whole range of different things that i can see this being used for again keep in mind that two and a half grand that might come down in price it may not obviously elon musk has got to pay for his twitter purchase so they (laughs) they might want to charge that as well to try and cross subsidize that a little bit there but it's still pretty exciting if you had the choice between nothing and that, that's not too bad. Keep in mind that people also buy satellite phones. Satellite phones are typically in the thousands, mm. and satellite phones are a bit limited in that it's the phone itself. You can make a phone call, but forget about any internet access on it. So this is better than that. I mean, it is connected to your vehicle, but better than that from an internet and phone call perspective. Uh, it sounds pretty good to me. Apple has bitten down into a big old slice of humble pie just recently. And in the EU, Apple will drop its sacred lightning cable and pick up the common old USB-C. Matt, is this likely to be anything more than a speed bump for Apple or or are there some more major implications? It was actually one of the Apple staff members that was caught on the hop a little bit. He was being interviewed by someone on stage and effectively they said to him, so what are you going to do with USB-C? Are you going to comply with the European Union? And we've talked about the change in the laws there. And his response was, well, obviously we'll have to comply. We have no choice. So that was the first indication Uh ever that Apple are actually going to play ball. I suspected they might have decided to roll out their army of lawyers and start to have some fun taking on the European Union for Apple, eh, whatever. Like <laughs> it's only Europe. <laughs> they do tend to take on some yeah. big opponents sometimes. So I thought they might have done that. What they didn't answer, and one of the questions was asked, was you'll have to do this for Europe for the phones that you send into the European market. But what about America, Australia, or anywhere else that's not the European Union that doesn't have a law that says you must have USB-C? They didn't answer that. And I'm really intrigued by this because my first thought is, In the manufacturing process, 
Sure. It's just easier to go with one Obviously. connection. Surely. So just we've got to do USB-C for a big chunk of the market. Let's do USB-C for the whole lot. But what I don't know, and I don't have privy to Apple's financials, I don't know how much money they make out of what's called the Apple Lightning Tax. So every other manufacturer out there that makes any product, a cable, a charge, anything at all that uses the Lightning port, they've got to pay just a little bit of money to Apple for the privilege of using their intellectual property in that Lightning port. Mm. So what's that worth? Is that worth enough to them to have two separate manufacturing processes? Or is it something where they say, we make... I don't know, $20 million out of that is going to cost us $40 million to tool up two separate processes. Let's just go with the one all the way. But I, I know there certainly are problems I can see having two separate processes. I know one of my kids was over touring around Europe one time and had a problem with her phone and so walked into an Apple store and they just swapped it out. There was a warranty problem. They just swapped it out for another iPhone and away she went on away. Now imagine if that happened, you're from Australia or from America, touring around Europe, walked into an Apple store, ah, oh, sorry, You've got the lightning port ah. version. We have the USB-C port version here. We can't help you out, sir. So that's one question I don't know the answer to. My gut feel is it will be across the board. It makes more sense that way. Mm. I just don't know if Apple like to play ball just because they have to. <laughs> so they might still go separate. But I think that's the first part. But the second part is when. Now, they don't have to do it until... Autumn 2024, I hate how they use seasons because the seasons are different around the world, <laughs> but autumn 2024, that's always the American autumn 2024, is when they'll have to do it in Europe. So when they normally release their new iPhones, which will be September 2023, the next range of phones that will come out, will that be the time they'll make the switch over to USB-C or will they wait until the next year because that product will already be on the market so they could get away with it for that one year? Or do they ditch it all together? And just like they did with the old three and a half mil audio jack, do they say, we're going to show you guys, we're just going to yeah. have no port at all. In your face that's, with your USB-C. That's right. <laughs> we're just going to have wireless charging and wireless data transfer for everything. So it's an interesting one. I don't know the final yeah. answer to that, but it's actually interesting to see Apple in the first place saying, yes, we're going to comply, which is a big admission from Apple. Here's another story from The Vault. It's our solution number 163 to the energy crisis, beaming solar energy from space. Matt, we've talked about it before, and the details are starting to be filled in now. They are. We did talk about it before in a highly theoretical fashion because that's about where the discussion was up to mm. at that particular point Seemed in time. Seemed a bit fanciful, but it was still very interesting and worth pursuing. That's right. But we've now got the Space Energy Initiative which is an organisation that's a collaboration of industry and academics. And they're, well, they've got a project called Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia? Cassiopeia. And they've, they're talking about a constellation of large satellites in high Earth orbit. Now, the logic for this is there. Let's get into the technical details in a minute. But the logic is there. When you get that pesky atmosphere that we've got that kind of helps us all stay alive on this mm. planet, you get a lot of absorption of the sun's energy before it hits the ground. So at the equator, for example, put some solar panels there. We've got per square metre, one kilowatt of energy is hitting the earth at midday with the sun right over the top of us at the equator. And we can convert that at maybe 25. We're getting yeah, up I thought we were about 25 to 30%. Yeah. yeah, getting up around that from a solar panel. So that's the sort of energy that we can get at the moment from our solar panels. But if we put the solar panels up 
above our atmosphere, or not even above our atmosphere, up in the upper reaches of our atmosphere, when you've got less of that pesky atmosphere getting in the way, you've got much more energy. And they're talking about maybe in the vicinity of 100 times the amount of energy that you could get if you have the solar panels up higher. Wow. That sounds great. And they've been doing that for a while with various satellites that are spinning around at the moment that are getting their energy from... From solar power. Yeah, Yeah. right. And they've been doing that for a long time. And that's one of Probably the the reason you can see them at night, if you can see them, is because of the reflection of light off the solar solar cells. There you go. So that's been well proven. They've been able to handle the differences in temperature, obviously, as they get into the sun and then on the other side of the planet and all the rest of it. So that's been well known. The slight problem is where they sit up there above the atmosphere and then where we want the power down here on Mm. Earth. A long extension cable? Maybe not. That's probably a bit too long. What they're talking about doing is collecting in these large arrays, collecting power or collecting energy, and then sending that down to Earth in a very large microwave beam. And my first thought is, I'm flying along innocently in a plane, (laughs) going across to visit, I don't know, my brother in America, and I go through this microwave beam and I cease to exist, (laughs) along with the other 400 people on the plane with me. So I just thought, surely that's a bit of a problem. Now, they might have no-go zones, no-fly zones, but they talk about this. In fact, Martin Salto, who's the co-chairman of the Space Energy Initiative, has talked about this being safe for humans to be around. And I just... I struggle a little bit to see this microwave beam of energy collecting all this power up there and sending that down to Earth. Think about what microwaves actually do and and how a microwave oven works. And it's just an intense beam that is focused in a particular area and it does reflect around the, the inside of the microwave oven, but it hits in particular places within that. And that's why you've got that rotating turntable so that it spreads this, the area that, that gets hit by that intense beam. Now, that's a very well-focused beam, and I'm not quite sure that you're going to get that level of focus. Mm. So they're talking about these satellite arrays, each one that they create being the equivalent of a two-gigawatt power station. Now, you think about that, you've got coal-fired power stations that are a bit bigger than that. There's some nuclear power stations out there that are around about that two-gig level, so they're not too bad in terms of the amount of power you could generate. So this is the plan. Put the array of solar panels up in space, send that down in a focused microwave beam. When it gets to Earth, there's a converter there that takes that focused microwave beam energy, because there's obviously energy in that Mm. microwave beam, converts that to electricity. Happy days, there we go. The estimation is, now this is a bold prediction, I believe, that they believe, the SEI, the Space Energy Initiative, believes that they could have this up and running at least in small samples by 2035. So we're not talking about way off in the distant future, but they're also saying that they believe they could have enough of these up in space by 2050 that all of our energy needs on Earth could be met via this method. Oh, wow. (laughs) That just sounds incredible to me. So there's some work also being done by the Air Force Research Laboratory. So they're working on something similar. They're not as advanced so far. So there are different organisations working on this, but it does sound like it just, um, I just want to see what this microwave beam is <laughs> going to do with all that energy contained within it. Whether it's going well, to look, it's also non-ionizing radiation, and True. that's another good point. So and you can probably pass through that beam without fear for your DNA. Yeah, and I was thinking that but, as well. That it, we talk about it often that it's non-ionizing, but it's, I was actually thinking more about the heat. This surely there's got to be a lot of heat created okay, in that so microwave let's beam. Okay, you know, so infrared is different to microwaves. Okay, so the microwave is only going to excite the water molecules 
inside your, your cells. And I've got a few of those. You have got a lot of water in your cells. <laughs> but then if you're passing through it, say, in a plane, perhaps if you were standing underneath it and you decided to just stand underneath it for right. a while. <laughs> Might be still, good. I'm just wondering about the level of focus. Yeah. Mm, that's anyway. coming from that far out in space. Yeah. Uh, I just... It sounds, it sounds fanciful, doesn't it? But there are clever people working on this, working on another climate solution, which is great because yeah. there are lots of climate solutions. Take and even if from. we got to the stage where we could provide all our energy by the year 2050, I think we'll be getting our energy from a whole range of different ways. Absolutely. There'll obviously be nuclear power. We talked about that last week. There's obviously already wind and solar. So we're getting energy from different ways already. This might just be another one of those ways that you can provide some energy for what we'll need to do to get rid of all these coal-fired power stations. I look forward to finding out more. asked you where you'd find the world's longest passenger train, where would you say? I reckon I might have guessed China or maybe Japan first up, perhaps India or maybe even somewhere in Africa. It'd have to be somewhere with long distances to cover and a whole bunch of people looking for some budget travel. I reckon that I might have guessed Switzerland somewhere after guest number 150, probably after Iceland. That's why I'd have blown the million bucks if it came to it, if it was on a game show. Switzerland. Cheese, chocolate, watches, pocket knives, and now super long electric trains, Matt. What about tennis players? You've got tennis oh, sorry, players in there. Got some good tennis players in there too, sorry. One Forgive in particular. Me. <laughs> uh, I actually would have thought that a long train, now this is the longest passenger train, but we've got some pretty long trains in Australia as well, sending some iron ore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Across. But they're not passenger no, trains. No, you're spot on there. So you're right, you almost feel like Switzerland's a bit small to have small. a really long passenger train. They've got lots train. of people in Europe. Yeah, I get that. Yep. And sure, they like to cut through mountains and stuff like that, but yeah. So this story made it into my cut of stories this week, not so much for the technology, well probably a little bit of the technology on there, but more about the technology of trains in a country. And when you look at Switzerland, so go back one step. I feel like I want to get a like a, like a raincoat and just stand on a side of a platform here and <laughs> listen to this. So for all our train spotters out there, this story is for you. That's right. That's right. You want to be a conductor, do you? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> so this, this story is about Switzerland celebrating 175 years of trains in Switzerland. So they actually put together 100 cars, 3,300 tonnes, two kilometres long, all powered by electric power in their... So uh, you say a two-kilometre-long train. So that's the record they've now got for the longest passenger train in the Can world. Can you imagine waiting for that to load? <laughs> well, I watched a video. You know, be first on. I, I watched a video of it, and it was a bit boring, to be honest, because I watched a video <laughs> ever going past. And sometimes when you pull up at a railway crossing and you start seeing the cars, you say, oh, well, count how many cars there, and you get to oh, 20 or whatever. Yeah. This one, I actually started doing that. I started going... This is stupid. I'm not yeah, we've got other things this. to do That's with right. my life. But it was a five-minute long video of this train just going past <laughs> crossing, and, and I a whole did. lot of angry car drivers. Yeah, right. How long are we going to wait here? I must admit, I do apologise to everyone in Switzerland. I did skip forward through the video a few times <laughs> because I thought I'm seeing the same thing. I'm not convinced I'm going to see anything that different as I keep watching it. And it, it was just a video on a loop anyway. It probably was. It was just three trains or three carriages <laughs> long. I just kept going on a loop. But it was a two-kilometer train, all powered by electric. But what I really like about Switzerland is that the average Swiss citizen travels 2,450 kilometres by train annually. The average citizen. The average citizen. So they've managed to get trains as a really good mode of transport, which is obviously one of the things we don't do in Australia very well at all. Mm. And one of the things that I think is a really good public transport solution 
getting people on trains. I actually can't remember the last time I went on a train. I don't get on a train very often. And many people in Australia don't get on trains mm. very often. So 2,450 kilometres average, I reckon in Australia it'll be about 2.45 kilometres average per <laughs> citizen. So that's fantastic. Um, basically, if you look at their trains across the country, 11,260 trains carrying 880,000 passengers each year. So they are really good with their trains. 3,265 kilometre long network. It's a small country. So to have mm. all of that in the one country, I think it's fantastic. But what they do do well is exactly as you said before, they get to little things called mountains and they say, can't go over it, can't go under it, better go through it. And they just punch holes through trains like mm. Swiss cheese. So four trains, sorry, for like Swiss cheese. So they really do focus on that transportation, that mass transportation, public transport, and it's a very efficient way to get people from A to B. The fact they're using electric trains for all of this is a part that got me really excited. So it's not an old diesel train spewing out various gunk. It's not just relying on carbon fuels or fossil fuels. Well, if you're going through a mountain too, you don't want to be belching out too many exhaust fumes, do you? Otherwise no, that's exactly right. So, so they've obviously got the hang of all of this pretty well. The fact they've had that whole network mostly electrified as well, whereas what we do in Australia, in Sydney, sure, you've got some electric trains in there, but you don't have to go very far. You get out to the Blue Mountains. Next thing you know, you basically have to get to the point where you're running diesel. And most of them are diesel electric anyway, so they are running mm. electric in terms of their propulsion, but they're providing that power via diesel. So we don't really get it. And one of the things that I often talk about is the Melbourne to Sydney route, plane route in Australia, is usually in the top three busiest routes in the world. Mm. What a great argument there to have a train, maybe a very fast train, between Melbourne and Sydney, wouldn't that save an incredible amount? But no, we just keep flying people between Melbourne and Sydney. And again, that's the sort of argument that we should be putting forward. So let's look at Switzerland. Let's see how they've done it. 175 years they've been doing it. They're doing it very well. Let's steal some of their ideas and see what we can do in Australia. Range anxiety takes another kick in the guts as a coast-to-coast fast-charging network for EVs is set up in the US. Matt, first the US, then Australia perhaps, dare I say? You've got long time frames between those, James. What is exciting about this story is it's Tritium who are doing this. So we've talked about Tritium before, an Australian-based company that started about 20 years ago. A couple of university students, friends got together. They were doing some small components for the solar challenge, the solar vehicle challenge that hasn't happened for a while, I don't think, but mm. it used to be between the top end of Australia and down to the bottom of Australia. So they made some small components, started off, and then next thing you know, they're making these fast chargers, DC fast chargers for all parts of the world, including America. So this is a whole fast charging network that basically is being built as part of Joe Biden's process to get more EV charging stations across, well, obviously across America, but I think the rest of the world will see what happens there and see the uptake Mm. and start to say maybe we can do that as well. So really this is about getting into those places, getting that common link, making sure that people feel that they can just travel along a certain distance and start to charge up. They're doing the charges at 150 kilowatts, so it's a reasonable charge rate for those. And again, that's going to be good, I suppose, for most people there. Stop and have a coffee, stop and have a bite to eat while you charge up. Just to top up and just to top up, and that's exactly right, and keep going. So Tritium, for example, they've sold now 7,600 charges worldwide, so they're going really well. That's great. I don't think we see enough about Tritium. I think it's one of those great success stories across the world. 
so often we'll see some great invention, some great breakthrough here in Australia, and then some overseas company takes control of it. Mm. Tritium have actually run with this for as long as they can, and I'm sure they've got some overseas investors as well. But it is great to see someone there, but I don't think they get the recognition in Australia because we don't get EVs yet. We're still Mm. only just over 2% of sales, so we don't take much notice of it. As time goes forward, or as you go across the world and look at different charges, then you go, hold on, that looks like the same one that I've seen back in Australia. I wonder who, oh, look, it's Tritium, because they've got a certain look about them. But again, it's a good story about that. Uh, Again, all of this is about just trying to get that linkage across there so that people start to get rid of that range anxiety, which probably isn't a problem anyway, and start to get the stage where they're more comfortable with that. Mm. Uh, the Biden administration has approved $900 million in funding to 35 states specifically to build EV chargers. So that's pretty exciting. Very cool. Yeah, and, and again, it's just, it's happening, James. It's happening. It's it's going to keep happening faster and faster. Um, they're getting up to some of the tritium chargers will be up to 350 kilowatts as we go forward. Oh, wow. okay. Yeah, so we're, we're really getting things to happen now. And that's what's exciting about all of this. But again, uh, here we just talk about it not quite getting <laughs> it's there. It's still a big issue, range anxiety, and it's only going to quell if we uh, get more charges out there. Elon Musk has arrived at Twitter, popped everything into a ginormous blender, and hit the go button. Maddie's cleaned out the boardroom and has a Saudi prince as a key shareholder. What's the mood like at Twitter, and how's Elon Musk's headspace right now? Oh, I didn't want to do this story. I just <laughs> everyone's been talking about Elon yeah, Musk and well, Twitter. That's, it's a big deal. It is a big. He didn't deal. want to buy it, <laughs> and so they said, "No, you're stuck. You got to buy it now." And so he said, "Right, well, if you're going to make me buy it." And it's a real challenge for them. So you're right, he's come in, and as you do whenever you buy a business, and the advice I always give to people that buy a business, the most important thing to change on day one is nothing. Nothing, yeah. You bought the business for a reason. Obviously, there was some level of success in that business. It was structured in a certain way, so do nothing with it. Sit back, take its temperature, just get a feel for it, and then just start to tweak some things here and there Mm. and just change one thing because obviously it's almost like a science experiment. You want to change five things because which of those five was the important thing. So keep everything the same and then just change one thing. And slow change is lasting change. That's exactly right. So you, you make one change. Did that make a positive impact? Negative? No, that was good. Yes, bad. Make the next change and keep going forward. And so Elon hasn't been to one of my business classes, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> so what? If only you'd pay attention. That's right. Might get rich or something. <laughs> what does What does Elon do? He comes in, as you said, he sacked the entire board. He's now the board. It sounds yeah. like a former prime minister of Australia, doesn't it? Being the minister <laughs> for everything, but he's now the entire board. He also didn't like the CEO and a number. He's going to change his name to Megamind or something <laughs> like. He's going to become a supervillain and put a cat on his lap and stroke <laughs> it in a strange way. But but sacked the CEO, of course, sacked mm. a number of the key executives, and so he's all those positions as well at the moment, presumably. So he's everyone and everything, and then starts talking about sacking well lots of the employees as well. Anywhere up to seventy five percent of the employees will also be shown the door. You'd be feeling a touch nervous at the moment if you're one of those loyal Twitter employees has been soldiering away for many years yeah. and then along comes Elon and says, well, I've just... Bringing his kitchen sink, by the way, oh. because why? He wants it to let it sink in. <laughs> I've bought your walking, company. Walking in, that's right, walking in with the kitchen sink. And, and I actually thought... Got when a I, sense of humour. When, when I saw the kitchen sink... well placed. <laughs> no. Well, I thought he was going to be, I'm throwing everything out, including yeah. the kitchen sink, <laughs> but it was the opposite. He's uh, let it sink in. So this is the sort of thing which sounds like a good little fun joke at a 
high school when you're doing some little skid. Mm. But when you've just spent $44 billion, yeah. not all of it your money. As you said, there's a Saudi prince who's one of the key investors there. He's only throwing in a billion or so, so he's probably not that concerned Pretty about amazing, it overall. Yeah. A few loans he's taken out as well, which Elon's got more than $44 billion in his back pocket, but he's taken out a few loans. He'd rather use someone else's money for this purchase. Keep in mind that this purchase of Twitter was made for a company that's still losing money. We're mm. talking about losing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Mm. So he's still losing money, but his solution is to sack everyone, reduce the headcount, now we'll make money. The problem he's got is that key advertisers are starting to pull out because they're concerned about whether or not some misinformation will start to be spread via Twitter. <laughs> Being a, like uh, associated with a supervillain. <laughs> well, but that might be it as well. <laughs> Sitting around, who are we going to advertise with? No one that looks like a supervillain. So that might be if he part starts of it. wearing a cape. <laughs> so you're right. So there was this whole process about do I buy it? Do I not? Oh, I've changed my mind. I think there's a lot of fake bots out there. Don't want any more. Sorry, we're going to sue you. All of that. That's in the past now. Mm. But even some of the simple things, you can get the blue tick, which shows that you're verified, so when you've got the James Eddy Twitter page, to prove that that's really you, you get a blue tick by Twitter. They want to start charging US $5 a month for that now, which some people might might pay that just to make sure that it's a verified account. But how many people will pay it and how many people will Mm. just say, well, I think there's another social media app out there. And that's the thing to remember. Over the years, we've seen social media apps come and they go, mm. and then something else will come along and replace it. The Shout flavor out to the MySpace fans. Oh, you could name another twenty examples like that. the The problem is that what's trendy today and what's the thing to use today doesn't necessarily mean it's the same tomorrow. So to pay forty four billion dollars for something that's not making money and that's not guaranteed to be part of our overall landscape for any length of time, because mm. we're talking about social media, is a bit risky. Which is why he wants to do it again with someone else's money. But it's, it's really one of those interesting things. We'll talk about this, I'm sure, in the future. Where is it going to go? What's he going to do with it? How's he going to make it suit his final outcome? And is his final outcome that he just wants to have Donald Trump back on Twitter? Who knows? Because that was one of the first <laughs> questions that people asked is, are you going to let Trump back on Twitter? I know he caused a capital riot and just a few little problems about misinformation around election, but... Surely you'd want Trump back on there. But, but is he? he's a libertarian rather than a conservative, isn't he? I, I'm not sure that he knows what he is. <laughs> he's just, I, I think he just wants to he stir just up. He, well, I, <laughs> that's right. Don't put a label on him, James. Don't pigeonhole him. I think he just wants to stir up controversy. He mm. wants to make sure people are talking about him. And we've talked about it before. He's got a bit of the Thomas Edison in him. He mm. loves the whole idea of creating discussion around him, making announcements without having any data to back it up, promising all sorts of things that he hopes that his engineers can finally deliver on. All of these things sound like Edison traits. I mean, Edison was very successful. Mm. Musk is very successful as well. But what's he going to do with Twitter? Are you getting so far outside what you know that you just say, well, just because you got the money doesn't mean you have to spend it on Twitter. It might have been burning a hole in his back pocket, I'm not sure. But anyway, it's <laughs> interesting. Where will this go? What will happen next? We will find out. Going for a job interview is almost always stressful. I don't know if it's if this next idea would make things worse or better. Can you imagine a job interview conducted by a computer with artificial intelligence and you connect it up in virtual reality. 
Matt, the world word surreal gets bandied around a little bit too much lately and a little bit inappropriately sometimes. But I reckon this is a drooping clock short of a definitively surreal sort of thing. Well, right now there are students at Sandwell College in West Bromwich that are putting on VR headsets as we speak, James, doing, at this stage, mock interviews. Now, part of the process here is to give kids some experience in doing interviews in what would be a normal interview situation. They're asked questions by an avatar. They're answering questions to this avatar. The avatar is clever enough, has got enough programming to listen to those answers and then ask another... respond on top of that. Exactly right, another logical answer. And at this stage, and I stress that, at this stage it's only being used to prepare kids, and I use that term very loosely, prepare the young adults of society for their real live interview situations, which are coming up. Because it's a bit nerve-wracking. You walk into your first interview, you're not sure about the world, you maybe not have this Mm. great confidence, and you might sit down to a team of three or five people and you've got to do an interview and they're asking you questions and, oh my gosh, if I get one wrong or don't answer it right, that's the end of this job. And I told mum and dad I'd I'd pay them back for all those tuition fees or whatever it might be. So it's a bit nerve-wracking. So this idea initially is to just go through that process Get people comfortable, get people used to it. Okay, I'm getting the hang of this interview thing, answering questions, yep, okay, it's all okay. But I fully suspect that the company that has set this up, and it's been done in conjunction with a college and and a a private company, they will say at some point in the future, and maybe the very near future, forget about wasting your time going through a bunch of job interviews – We'll narrow the field down, not just by looking at CVs, but we'll narrow the field down by doing some VR interviews, some virtual reality interviews with people. And then, sure, we might get down to the last two or three and then we'll let you do the old-fashioned human-to-human thing. But before you get there, these people might have to go through this whole virtual reality process. And it's got to be better than reading a CV. I read CV sometimes. I go, wow, this sounds absolutely fantastic. And interview the person and it's Nothing like the CV. I pull out Mm. the CV and go, is this the same CV? Did you steal (laughs) something else's and change the name at the top? And you flip that over. Sometimes you read a CV and it doesn't really show you the character, show you the Mm. personality that person might bring to that particular job. So it is hard to judge it off a CV, but that's how we've done it in the past. Mm. Maybe we'll do it via this VR type interview as the initial stage and get to that point where we narrow that field down to those last few. Maybe we'll just start hiring people based on the VR interviews. It sounds scary, I know. <laughs> That's so much to process. How would you feel oh. about someone walking into, in your case, the, the workplace or any workplace, and the first time you saw them in the flesh was when they came in for that first day on yeah, the job? Goodness me. Everything had been vetted via some sort of artificial intelligence, via some sort of VR process, and then they turn up on day one for that job. It just sounds incredible. But I think we're there. I think we're not there. I think we're heading there. Oh, the humanity. and with the storm clouds brewing overhead it's time for us to end this picnic and head for shelter thanks for another ripping tech talk matt it's been fun this one james i think everyone's been fun isn't it it's hard to say it's fun yeah it's 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 good to see well there's never a a, a, an issue with what we've got to talk about i never have a problem finding the things to talk about i'm always culling various stories and trying to decide which are the best nine stories but look this is another Oh, look, I have fun doing these anyway, so hopefully our listeners do as well. Yeah, Simon's, Simon Townsend, Wonderworld, eat your heart out. I'm loving the idea of coast-to-coast fast charging, and I love the idea of beaming solar power by satellites. Bound to make some conservatives really cranky, I reckon. That's all that we have time for today, folks. Thanks for finding us once again through all the cacophony of noise on the World Wide Web. I'm James Eddy, and it's been an absolute pre- pleasure, even a pleasure, 
bringing you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson for another week. We hope that you'll tune in again next week for more tips on how to navigate for the future without getting cleaned up at a T intersection. Like us, five star us and recommend us. I guarantee you won't regret it. Oh,